0: Welcome to the Kindness Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, Carly Riggs. And um, woo-wee, friends, today's episode, it's, it's a heavy one. It is heavy. It's a little dark, but important. So incredibly important. I want to give you a trauma warning now that we get into some pretty staggering statistics And um, I won't lie to you. After I had this conversation with my guests, I needed some time to shake it off. Um, So if you're not in the right headspace to listen to something a little bit deep, then I suggest maybe you come back and visit us and listen later. But I do suggest that you do come back because this conversation is incredibly important. Um, I had guests Joey Wilkerson and Lauren Pilcher on with me to discuss sexual assault in the intellectual and developmental disability community and the importance of education and prevention. So a little bit about my guests. Um, Joey is the Chief Diversity Officer and Title IX Coordinator at Indiana University Southeast. He's also an author and sexual assault advocate. His organization, Greek law has educated hundreds of college students about consent and bystander intervention. We also had my friend, Lauren, who is the COO of Sweet Behavior Services. Lauren is a passionate disability activist and researcher and has spent almost two decades working in the disability community and advocating for the disability community as well. Like I said, this is tough stuff to talk about. But we had this conversation because it is so important and it needs to be talked about for something to be done. So, hopefully, soon, maybe next week, we will have another episode ready to drop with more information about education and action steps that we can take as a community.
1: You are listening to the Kindness Warrior Podcast, a Down Syndrome of Louisville production serving locally sharing globally
0: so where do we begin i mean i don't even know where to begin lauren i noticed that you had been posting some um some staggering statistics maybe we should start there it was
2: posted in there and i was like i'm gonna tell carly and you'd already seen them all,
0: so, uh, <laughs> oh i took screenshots of
2: them all <laughs> So one of the one of the things that that I have found in um, and you know Joey knows this for sure. Um, people don't want to talk about sex. They definitely don't want to talk about sexual assault, and people don't want to talk about abuse. Um, I, uh, well, I I am a a child abuse uh, survivor, uh, physical and emotional. Um, it was really hard for me to talk about it. Like Joey. I, I I guess I want to be a writer, too, because during the pandemic, I started really delving into to some truths and really looking at uh, a lot of my past. Um, people don't want to talk about it. I sort of heard stories in my family that my, my granny would tell me and my granddaddy. Um, and there's a, 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 a huge history of sexual violence and violence in my family that I didn't know about until the past two years talking to my granny. So, um, my granddaddy was a, um, a child of rape. I didn't know that no clue. Um, until recently, nobody wanted to talk about it mm-hmm. even in our family. Um, so yeah. So starting with this, with the statistics, when, when I do training on uh, abuse and neglect, um, uh, in the intellectual and developmental disabilities, uh, population, I just i throw facts at people that are 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 hard and i just one two three four i just punch them with the facts to start off with so i'm just going to go ahead and do that now please forgive me um by the way uh as i said before these statistics truly are unbelievable and they may sound dramatic uh i will send carly uh all of the uh the the citations if you're like me you're not you want to know
0: yeah i can put them in the show notes absolutely
2: I, so so don't take my word for it, please. Don't, <laughs> don't take the word of anybody who just says things. Do your research, America, right? Mm-hmm. We need to get past that. So I'm just going to read some off here. So um, in 2012, over 1.3 million violent crimes, including rape and assault, occurred against people with disabilities. And that number has been steadily increasing since 2008, which makes people with disabilities one of the most harmed groups in the United States, right? Seventy percent of people report they've been the people with disabilities report they've been victims of abuse. Seventy percent. Right. Sixty three percent of parents and immediate family members report their loved one with the disabilities experienced abuse. Ninety percent of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities will experience sexual violence at some point during their lives. Ninety percent.
0: It makes me sick to my stomach.
2: Yeah, that's, that's not a world that I want to live in. I, women with intellectual and developmental disabilities are 10.7 times as likely to be sexually assaulted than other women. Um, estimates indicate that over 15,000 people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are raped each year in the United States. 50% of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities will experience 10 or more incidents of sexual abuse. The final fact that I'll give right now is 90% of the perpetrators are in an uh, in an authorized care providing position. So in other words, 90% of the people who are um, abusing folks with developmental disabilities, they're their parents, they're the family members, they're teachers, they're school personnel, and they're caregivers, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: that's hard, people don't wanna hear that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: People don't wanna hear those facts. But the fact is, is, if you work with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, you need to look at these facts You need to look at these facts. And if you're a parent, you need to think about these facts. And that needs to inform um, how what you teach to your child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: So what can we do? I mean, I know we're going to really dive into that. But like, you know, people are going to be listening to this and they're going to be sick to their stomach like I am right now. And 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 I'm like, okay, what can I do?
2: i mean this is i'm definitely going to throw it over to joey He he's the expert there yeah. i do i do want to have a great conversation joey may feel like he's a little bit uh uh sucker punch but i do want to bring up some of the uh some of the stuff as far as disability justice goes and mm-hmm. how prosecutors don't prosecute these types mm-hmm. of cases i'd love to hear what joey has to say on that mm-hmm. but the one thing that the only thing that i have found that um that can prevent these, these instances is, is sex education, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's something that's not happening with the disability community.
0: Yeah, it, it, yeah, so. students with disabilities, um, and I will, I will have to look up the exact, um, this is one statistic I didn't look up the exact, um, but students with disabilities in in general are not included in sex education in schools at all because they're seen as perpetual children. And this is a problem that we we run into on a daily basis in our community. Um, and they're like, oh, they don't need to know that. But um, it's very, very important. And it also is something, of course, um, that makes parents feel uncomfortable. And so they're like, I'm just not going to do that. And um, this is a huge, this is a huge problem. And we we need to, um, we need to be better at at, at sex education. I, I completely agree. And I think that, um that that is a way that we can be proactive in our community. And it is something that our listeners who are listening right now that you can think about and and. Um, and move forward with with, you know, sex education. So, Joey, tell me tell us a little bit more about what you do as far as like when you do train um, young men about consent. And, and, and don't you have you have a female on your team, too. Right. And, and she goes and talks to sororities.
4: Like at this point, it's just me.
0: Oh, okay. So I, I'm, talking
4: to, I'm talking to everyone at this point. Fraternities, okay. sororities, everybody else. Uh-huh. too. Um, but yeah, so when, we, when, when I started talking to, um, you know, talking to fraternities, I mean, I, I wasn't trained. I didn't have any training. I mean, I had two, I, I knew two weeks of criminal law from our class. But other than that, like, I wasn't trained at all. But I thought, like, hey, maybe that, maybe I can use that to my advantage. Um, you know, so let me go in and let me talk to these guys in a way that I would talk to them if we were just hanging out at the bar having a drink. Um, what I realized is, it's like, wow, I have a lot of stories from the time I was an undergrad that I could be telling these guys. And I mean, these are stories that I would tell you anyway. But when I was younger, I would tell the stories because I was trying to brag. Mm
3: -hmm. But
4: now in this, in this frame, You can still tell the same the same stories, but just move the spotlight just a little bit over this way to highlight the consensual behavior of the story. Um, And what I found is by going and doing that with fraternity guys, it's like, yeah, they're learning, but I'm also keeping them engaged in the story. Um, I'm keeping them engaged because they're looking up here and they're like, oh, well, that's a guy just like me. He was in a fraternity just like me. He did all the same stuff that we're doing. Um, you know, I, I, and I, and I still, whenever I meet with uh, new colleges, I'll tell them it's like, look, I want to give you a language warning. Um, I will drop one very strategically placed F bomb <laughs> at the very beginning of this presentation. But it's done for a reason because once I drop that, they know, oh, this isn't just some lame thing that the university's doing. This guy has credibility. He's different. And at that point, now I got you eating out of the palm of my hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked. And, 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 it, and it works out. So, you know, we go out there. We try to educate. And I try to use a little combination of, you know, my my academic self and my showman self. So, you know, if Dave Chappelle was coming to your fraternity to talk about <laughs> Um, consent. That's kind of you know. <laughs> that's kind of what I've brought in the past, and you know, now that I'm a Title IX coordinator working for university, now I have to be a little bit more academic with some of the talks that I give here. But um, you know, that's just kind of where it all started at.
0: Yeah. Um. So Joey and I have uh, talked several times about modifying his curriculum to to suit the, the disability community as well. And I mean, it's, it's just as important because, you know, typically if, if someone in the disability community, um, has been assaulted, it, it most likely is someone that is in the, from the general population that's doing it. So it's just, it, you know, just as important to teach the general population about consent as it is, um, you know, our community about about, you know, sex education and, and respecting their bodies and, and knowing when to say no. Um, but Lauren, what, what do you think that, that it should look like when we teach consent and, and sex ed? I mean, do you think it should be this, the same, or do you think that we should, it should be modified?
2: Well, it's, first of all, I am going to answer your question, and no, I'm not pulling a politician here. I'm going to come back <laughs> to it. Um, I, I want I want to put some framework to our conversation here first, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's framework that us three know from from being in the disability community, but growing up, how did we learn about sex? Right? Like, how did we learn about sex?
3: We're, We're separated. It, <laughs> yeah. But, 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 <laughs> but yeah. A lot of it,
2: i'll tell you how we learned about it right i mean i didn't we didn't have the internet at home we we were uh i was i'm in that right at that generation where we didn't have it at home until i was like in high school but the way we the way that i learned about it was one through peers that's like the main way right Mm -hmm. you all have the one class in fifth grade or we did where the girls were separated from the boys and we were all given deodorant at the end of it or whatever Mm -hmm. right So that's a part of it, too. Right. And it wasn't a very good one. I went to school Mm -hmm. in Charlestown. It just it just wasn't. Um, So and then we we learn about it from well, now a lot of people learn about it from from getting on the Internet. Right. Um, And then back then, you know, tapes, people passed around tapes or that one (laughs) scene from Porky's or whatever. (laughs) Right. You know, I'm not trying to downplay it because Mm -hmm. it it offered a really distorted view of it, at least for my generation Mm -hmm. of what sex was and sexuality was. Okay, so that's how we learn about it. Okay, let's put ourselves in the shoes of somebody with a developmental disability, though, right? Okay, let's talk about peers. If you're in a segregated special education classroom, you're not going to learn anything about sex from your peers, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Typically, you mentioned the perpetual children thing. Everything's monitored by parents um, more strongly so than um, you know non-disabled. kids mm-hmm. i would say so no internet and movies that's out too so what happens is you it's not just not getting sex education it's not getting any exposure mm-hmm. to puberty or sexuality at all right mm-hmm. so when people talk about the importance of sex sex education formal sex education for people with de- developmental disabilities it is everything mm-hmm. it is it is the only way likely that they're going to learn about sex it's just the truth mm-hmm. so
0: well and, and we even have i mean now that the internet is prominent and you know many of of um you know i've got some older students whose parents are elderly mm-hmm. who don't know what sex is that the the adult with a disability has a tablet and they're typing sex into the into google and you can imagine what comes up, and now they're scared because of what comes up. you know now they're like this is what this is what this is you know so
2: I mean I don't want I don't want my children, I don't want our brothers and sisters with disabilities. I don't want our brother non disabled brothers and sisters to learn what sex is through pornography because that is not a realistic mm-hmm. view of sexuality and, and the real world so Do we modify sex education? I mean, it depends. I mean, if somebody has an intellectual disability, um, maybe you do need to modify it. But here's my deal. Why don't you go ahead and just make it very plain language anyway? Mm -hmm. So you know that everybody is grasping the concept.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. When Joey's talking about his consent presentation, the whole time he's talking, I'm like, I don't think we would have to modify that at all. (laughs) I think he can come in and do the exact same presentation to the to the males and females, that you know, yeah, of our just, organization, yeah.
2: You have to give a background though, and you can't assume. You kind of have to do it in steps, I guess. Mm-hmm. With doing a very basic, you know, what sex is, mm-hmm. you know, what 100 yes, why yeah. it's okay to have those feelings, and that's another thing too, is that often um, teenagers with with uh, developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, especially. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to even experience puberty, so it's a very repressed thing. And then they don't understand the urges, and there's nobody to guide them through that. I, I honestly, I, I can't imagine what that must that must mm-hmm. feel like. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know, growing up, we all went through puberty.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of our social events that we have when it's not a global pandemic is is I have a girls' lock in and I have a boys' lock in, and um, and the at the boys' lock in several times I've had to say, oh, hey, I know you're in your your PJs. Um, and normally you'd be in your bedroom. But guess what? Your bedroom is private. Do you know what private is? Private is, you know, let's talk about what's private and let's talk about what's not. Guess what? You know, we're all in this room together with a lot of people. That means that we're in public right now. And, you know, so but but you literally have to break it down because, because some 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 people will hear the word private and not even know what that word means, or like you said, Lauren, like they don't even know what the word sex means. So you really have to, um, you know, sometimes like you said, like get down into the basics and make it super simple, but don't ma- don't dumb it down. <laughs> if that makes sense, you know, yeah, you don't want to leave things out, but you almost have to, um, obviously know your audience, but.
4: Carly, if I can jump in on that, yes. You
0: know,
4: one of the things that we used to always say with Greek law is that we're trying to change the culture. You know, make these decisions to change the culture. Well, to me, it sounds like there does need to be a culture change, but it sounds like that culture change needs to be with the parents. Mm. Um, you know, whenever you know, whenever I started doing this work, you know, so many you can imagine so many of my friends would come up to me and say, hey, you know, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I was, you know, a, I I was a victim of sexual assault. And I even had some friends that would come up and say, hey, I know now that what happened to me was sexual assault. I wasn't quite sure of it then. And so that's what kind of gets me thinking that if we are not teaching, you know, students or, or, or kids about sex when, they're supposed to learn about it, then we get to a point where you may not even understand that what's happening to you is a crime because you don't understand what's happening to you, period. At
0: all, yes. And
4: Lauren, in all of those stats that you read off, I'm sure there's a high level of stats that don't even get reported because people don't understand. I mean, it's already difficult for people to report sexual assault as it is even if you, when you know what's going on. Um, so I can only imagine, you know, what it looks like if you don't even understand sex because no one ever broke it down to you. So,
2: man, we, we are definitely from the theater, aren't we all? We know how to segue <laughs> into each other. So I'm you throw it to me. I'm going to, it's like that acting exercise where you throw the ball to each other. Uh, so um, I want to talk about disability justice for a little bit. And I want to talk about that, that statistic that, uh, or that, what Joey was just talking about. So a 2012 study found that among people with disabilities who reported being victims of abuse, nearly two thirds didn't report it to anybody. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? There's a whole lot of reasons for that. Not just if you have a disability or not, and you know, we can it's a lot of shame that it goes with that. But I, one of the things is, is I don't think people know when they're being sexually abused because again, of the people who are sexually abusing and abusing, rather, um, people with disabilities are people that that person loves,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. right? And that's the perfect victim Mm -hmm. for for them. So, and this is kind of, you know, where I want to get a little bit more to disability justice. So even when a person did report, even when, so that one third of people who did report it to the authorities, 52% of the time, nothing happened like nothing happened. Police didn't do report, nothing. Only less than 10% of the time was a person even arrested. And of that 10%, only 24% were charged with the crime. Of that 24% were charged with an offense, so charged. And then only 8% of that 24% were convicted. Mm. So I do this uh, part of my training. Can't really do it here and you'll see why, but um, when I do my abuse and uh, abuse and neglect training, I have a um, a table that has 100 playing cards on it, right? And I read those stats because for me, I'm not I'm not a math guy, so I have to see it. So what happens is um, I put 100 playing cards on there. I have everybody write the name of somebody they love the most on that card, right? And I read those stats, and I have one person slowly take away the cards and what it comes down to is the people who actually go to jail for assaulting people with disabilities it's not 3 playing cards it's not 2 playing cards it's not 1 playing card it's not a half of a playing card it is about a quarter of an inch of a playing card out of all those 100 where people actually go to jail for that and i'm going to throw it to uh throw it to Joey here it's got <laughs> but i didn't know until i i, I the love of my life is a lawyer, who I live with. Um, I've been with Emily for for going on a decade. I wish everybody could live with the lawyer for it's fantastic. It's really eye opening, right? Social worker and a lawyer. It's depressing sometimes. I tell you what, but until you uh, have
4: that romantic argument, then it's like, <laughs> oh, why did I marry a lawyer? <laughs>
2: right, right. But I I don't think we learn enough about the criminal justice system or 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 courts at all. So. One of the reasons why people don't go to jail a whole lot is, Joey knows this for sure, prosecutors don't take cases they can't win. And when you have somebody with an intellectual and developmental disability, um, chances are high that that's that's not a surefire case because the the defense can poke all kinds of holes using prejudice, right, prejudice towards intellectual disabilities. So, Joey, I don't know if you can talk. Talk on that. I know I kind of threw that at you, but
4: <laughs> well, I think you know. I think the answer to that question kind of sits uh, sits on top. Um, you know, every you know every prosecutor. If you break down the title of their of the prosecutor, it's always an assistant something, right? An okay. assistant Commonwealth attorney, an assistant county attorney. Who are you who who are you the assistant to, and why does that person not take? this stuff seriously or why is that person not making this a priority um the good thing now law and politics they they intersect they intersect a lot especially on that higher level i mean we vote for these people right we vote for our county attorney we vote for you know our judges right so my that would be where i would send those questions up to is like why is this office not taking this stuff seriously? Why is this office not aggressively pursuing these cases? Judges, when these cases do make it into your courtroom, why why are there more times where the case has been dismissed or not guilty versus a conviction? Start asking those questions. You know, I wrote an article about judges and how difficult, like, how difficult it is to vote for judges, right? Because like a normal politician, and I know the word normal politician, those sometimes (laughs) shouldn't go together, but I know a normal politician runs a campaign and tells you all the promises that they're going to do. You know, I'm going to clean up the streets. I'm going to, you know, raise or lower taxes. I'm going to do all these things and all these campaign promises. Judges typically aren't allowed to do that. Um, because we have rules that bind us and, you know, say that, hey, you really can't make those big statements because you have to rule everything justly, right? So when it comes to voting for judges, now you got to figure out who to vote for. So I'm going to ask other attorneys that are in the courtroom, hey, um, Judge Carly, is she good? Like, what is she all about? Um, I have a friend uh, named, named Courtney Kellner. Every year, Courtney puts out a um, a little list of uh, of all the candidates and who she endorses. And I think it goes a long way to see endorsements from groups like DSL as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who is going to be an advocate and who is really going to prioritize this because mm-hmm. that's what it comes down to. You know, if I'm a prosecutor working at the County attorney's office, I could have all the passion in the world about a topic. But if the boss man says, Hey, You know, maybe don't put all your focus on that, you know, put your focus on this. Like, you know, you're kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place, the rock being your passion and the hard place being the person who signs your checks.
0: Mm -hmm. So same with the, you know, the police force. um, Many times they just stop at the reporting. It's like we don't have any evidence done. And um, and how do we I mean, and that that happens in the general population, too, with sexual assault right, Joey? I mean, just not even listening to the victim. How do we stop that?
4: You know, once again, I think that it comes down from on top. I mean, in our country, our police have had a history when it comes to domestic issues, have had a history of kind of turning a blind eye to domestic issues or or kind of writing those off. Because like domestic issues are difficult, right? You pull up to a house and, Something's going on inside between, you know, two two partners. I mean, that's difficult, right? So, you know, the police have had a history of turning, you know, turning their back on it. I mean, I know we're all kind of in the same age range. So you remember the show Cops, right? You know, the cops would come out, you know, one time to, to separate something. And then two segments later, they're right back at the, the same, same house, house. Mm. for the exact same thing. Um, but I think that comes down from on top. Um, what is your chief telling you to prioritize? What is your metro councilman and your alderman telling you to to prioritize? You know, I know that our metro councilman a few years ago in Louisville, uh, they made a very clear statement to the police: "Hey, we are going to decriminalize marijuana, or at least move marijuana down, 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 down on the priority list." So. Okay, Metro Councilman, if you can do that for weed, then why can't we move, you know, sexual assault response up, 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 up. a priority yeah. list? Yeah. Like, which one of you uh, um, elected officials is going to step up and make that a thing that you champion?
2: Mm-hmm. I'm waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things, too, with, with folks with disabilities that makes it so difficult is, and you know, this feels... I, I get very depressed talking about this, which, you know, you you can't not. But one of the more sinister things is if you have a developmental disability, it's hard to even report it. Right. Mm -hmm. It's hard to even report it. So it's if you're if you're in a supported living setting, for instance, or if you live in a, a group living setting, your staff can completely control the narrative Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. They can completely sweep stuff under the rug and they will use a person's intellectual disability. That's the first thing that they that they jump to. Mm
3: -hmm. Oh, they 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 don't understand. Mm -hmm. They don't Mm
2: -hmm. understand. Right. Mm -hmm. It was a misunderstanding. Right. I mean, in in a group home, for instance, a a very, very anti group home. uh, But a group home, for instance, there's typically one phone in the entire house. Right. And it's in the locked office. So who are you going to report sexual abuse to? Right. Mm -hmm um and it happens i'm telling you it happens all the time um from uh, we have clients here um who frequently abuse is reported and nothing happens uh we had a a, a person um uh who called the police had the, the guardian called the police i'm not going to go into detail about about anything the guardian called the police and before the police showed up the provider of services called the police and said not to take that report seriously because this person had a history of lying and uh, had an intellectual disability, hmm. right? So um, it, it's, it's, it gets even darker, right? When, mm-hmm. when a person doesn't even have the means. So you have, like Joey mentioned, you may not know, a person may not know that they've even been abused, right? They may be confused because it's a person they love doing it to them. And then if they actually know that something's wrong, they they literally may not have a way to report it to anybody.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm going back to my my question like what do we do? I mean, when Joey was talking about about, you know, who who's in charge, I I thought, okay, let's form a committee and let's start advocating. We need to go, you know, like okay, we, this is something that we can do. This is something proactive we can do obviously education is super duper important and that's something we can do like yesterday right mm-hmm. and and you know we we've got some programs at DSL but like I'm you know I'm thinking like okay let's we're really going to dive into this more um but what else I mean what else more I mean like do you know in- anything else like what so, what do you uh, think
2: there needs to there needs to be I mean we grew up and you, you're right Joey we're all in the same age group I think if not, we all look young and healthy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So one thing that that we we grew up in the the age of the PSA, right, the public service announcement, right. We all remember this as your brain on drugs, and they they did one on sexual assault. They did one on uh, not enough on consent. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's more of a a, unfortunately a a buzzword of now in the past decade. But um, there needs to be. There needs to be widespread awareness, right? I think that's that's the main thing. There does need to be pressuring of um, of representatives and, and legislators and judges and prosecutors um, on on just intellectual disability in general, right? Because mm-hmm. it's so misunderstood. The perpetual children phenomenon is just it drives me batty, right? Um, and I think that we need to bring disability justice issues um, to the forefront of uh, of the conversation. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. So another thing, too, is since the developmental disability community um, is not in the news a whole lot, and when they are in the news, it's sort of inspiration porn kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not like real issues like this. Because nobody wants to talk about this on the eleven o'clock news, of right?
3: Course.
2: Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for people to realize, from people who are in the field, that this is happening. It is happening. I'll give you one example. I won't give any more because it's it's hard for me to talk about. But I'll I'll, I'll give you an example. It's recent, right? And you can I can include it in the the link um, in your information too, so people can read about it because it's unbelievable. Um, Southern Indiana case um, a couple years ago, um, Child Protective Services came in and found uh, out that a um, two uh, adoptive parents had been uh, assaulting their child with a developmental disability, right? So this is what was this Crawford County, Indiana, right? Out in the middle of, of nowhere. Um, they had adopted a, uh, they'd adopted a girl. Um, who had developmental disabilities. They regularly kept her in a cage in their bedroom with her name above it, with food bowls. She was regularly sexually assaulted. She was verbal, able to give the police her story. Charges were pressed. Prosecutor did take it up. They went to court. The outcome was both foster parents got probation they saw no jail time that is not justice so it is happening around here mm-hmm. and people i i don't want that to be the world but it, we just can't ignore the stuff we don't like mm-hmm. not anymore i mean politicians are getting away with too much stuff for us not to pay attention right now um but This stuff regularly happens, and people need to know when they walk into a a special education classroom, when they walk into a day program, they need to look around and they need to open up their eyes and think, 90% of these people that I'm looking at are going to be sexually abused in, in, in their life. And that needs to build a rage inside of them that transmutes into some sort of action mm-hmm. right and that's not happening right now yeah it's just not happening right yeah.
0: now. yeah there, it's there's way more people like me who who tune try to tune it out <laughs> you know like i i don't try to do out, but it's like i've been looking at this for too long and then and then i'm like oh gosh this is bumming me out and then i don't want to look at it and i have to like literally legitimately force myself like no this is so important this is so important i've i've been having to tell myself that all day. This is important, this is important, this is important. Now, obviously, you have to be able to also function, but <laughs> but my inclination is to be like, well, let's think about this instead, you know. Um
2: the only thing I was I was going to say too is is to build on to the, the sex education thing and sex education and studies, not a lot of studies have been done, but the studies Columbia University had one in 2018, I think, that showed that people who had sex education, including consent education, were 50% less likely to be sexually assaulted in college if they had it prior to college, right? So these programs do work. We, we know that. And I, Joey, you're a blessing for doing the work that you do. It's tough work. But one thing, too, that not only education, sex education for us,
3: mm-hmm. for
2: us as far as us being people with developmental disabilities, but, but Carly, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a training on the behavioral signs to spot if somebody's being abused or neglected?
0: No, nope.
2: Have you had a training on some of the physical signs of abuse and neglect, like sexual abuse and neglect, ever?
0: No, not an official training. No.
2: Okay. See, that's part of the problem too. Mm-hmm. Um, people who uh, who provide services, they need to be educated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I. I'm not tooting my own horn, but, but I, I am in charge of the training here at, at our company. And it's the first time, I, it was important to me, I wanted people to understand, you have to be on the lookout. Mm-hmm. We have to be vigilant, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We have to be vigilant. We have to know the signs and symptoms behaviorally and physically too. So it's education, not only sex education for people with disabilities, but also education for people uh,
0: who, um, who work at organizations like ours. Yeah. 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 I think that's,
4: uh, you know, for me, I think that's kind of part of my answer to, you know, the original question of what can we do? You know, I think, I think of my position here at IUS and all the things that I do. Um, so I do the education, but I'm also here, um, if anyone, you know, needs to report something, you know, they can come to me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when I was, Doing my interview, I let them know that, like, hey, I'm not just going to be sitting in the office all day. You are going to see me walking around the campus, and I might look like I'm lost, but it's for a purpose. And that is that people know, hey, when you see that big, tall, 6'1 black guy with the bald (laughs) head and the beard, that's the Title IX guy. Like, go talk to him and be comfortable talking to him. Um, if you see me, if, if you see me coming. So, I wonder, and my thought is, is, is there a a way and a to have a position like that, um, especially in some of those, you know, especially in some of those group home situations, the situation where there is only one telephone um, and it's in locked up in the office. I'm like, well, you know, there needs to be an office for your sexual misconduct director or your title nine director or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's checks and balances, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's having that person that, you know, students know that like, Hey, Miss Carly, I know that, I know that I can go to her Mm -hmm. if anything else, because she is an advocate for this specific thing. And I don't know if that, I don't know if that director or or that coordinator or that person is someone that is on the staff or if it's a third party, it sounds like it could, it it could depend on, you know, what goes on in the specific place Mm -hmm. as to whether you need to bring a third party in more, more as like a watchdog, or if this is someone that, you know, your company has hired specifically, but to me, it, it sounds like it sounds like a, a person that can do that education and can be the um, the head investigator on misconduct things is kind of needed um, in, in those arenas. Also, on the law side of things, um, we need more advocates mm-hmm. for we we need more advocates for this specific thing. Um, I have a friend named Ashley. She's a public defender, and we always. We always get together each week and we talk about different things going on and public defenders are always, at least the the baby public defenders, the ones that are fresh starting out are always known for how, uh, just how passionate they are about something. You know, like we we have a lot of people that came in uh, in this class of PDs that are, are passionate about Breonna Taylor and social justice. And if you ask them what they're there for, it's to make sure that there's social and racist, racial justice. And by golly, if that means that I have to go to jail in contempt of court because I curse the judge out, well, guess what? Sign me up and put me in the case. Okay, cool. Well, we need that exact same passion on this side for these clients, mm-hmm. just like we have them in the PD's office. So where are those advocates at? Like, are you in
0: law school right now? I think, are you I, think I think they might be listening, Joey. They're listening <laughs> that, to this podcast. Right now. That's what we need
4: in the <laughs> in, in the legal world. We need those passionate legal advocates that you know can focus on this specific area of of sexual assault.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when I was doing some of my research for talking to you, to you guys, I was looking at the rain, um, R A I N N website. And, um, there are a couple resources where family is like, it's like, you know, most of it, like you were saying, Lauren, um, is caregivers and things like that. And it's like, here's, here's some, here's a list of questions when you are interviewing someone who's going to work with, with someone with intellectual disabilities. Um, and so there are resources out there for families. If, if you, if you do, you know, because that, that's the other thing right now, group homes are a thing, which we can get into your, uh, um, your views on that maybe in a different, that's a whole nother conversation, Lauren, but, um, you know, group, group homes and, and, and caretakers, um, some of our folks have to have a caretaker and, you know, it, it it's a reality that that is part of, that is part of their life. So, so there are steps that we can take to also try to, avoid having um someone like that in their life lauren do you have any tips on that like you know i'll put that resource in but how do i mean sometimes it's family though you know like what w- yeah
2: i love the idea of an independent sort of uh an in- investigator joey that's 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 brilliant and i it it's mm. It's tough to get into. I'm a very very optimistic man who's full of love and I do not like to be negative. <laughs> I do not. I really don't. And when I start to talk about these these topics it it may sa- sound like I do, but every state's different as far as um you know how they run their adult protective services programs and um um how they sort of do things, right? So I'm going to speak on Indiana because Kentucky's different. Mm -hmm. They're all different, right? So, again, I think a part of it's education. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, we have to be watching. The people have to be watching and know what behavioral signs and symptoms look for. But the system in Indiana has to be reconstructed from the ground up let me give you won't just make that statement let let me tell you why (laughs) Mm -hmm. it has to be and Joey I hope I I hope if you don't know these things that you will talk to me more about this and and uh, be fast friends please I need I need more uh, lawyers in my network Uh, so here's here's how it works okay again this seems unbelievable it's not well it is unbelievable but it is the truth so Um, let's say I'm a person who has been, uh, somebody touched me inappropriately, right? I'm a person with a disability. I'm in supported living. A staff member has touched me inappropriately. Okay. Here's what has to happen. I go and I tell my case manager or somebody, they have to file an incident report with the state of Indiana. This incident report, um, is sent to adult protective services, which we'll talk about in a minute, right? It's sent to adult, adult Protective Services, and it's also sent to sort of an independent tribunal called the Bureau of Quality Improvement Services. A lot of jargon here. I'm just I'll be quick with it. So you think, well, you would think that they would be the ones to do the investigation, right, to see if abuse had actually happened. But they're not. So uh, according to the, the way it works here in Indiana for people in services, the people who are in charge of the investigation of abuse or neglect or exploitation is the company that may have committed the abuse, neglect, or exploitation. Mm. So so in other words, this is the example I always give, could you imagine if if OSHA operated that way, right? If a crane fell over in a construction site and instead of OSHA coming to investigate, they just said, hey, Joey, send me your report of what happened, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to come out looking looking like you're not guilty at all, right? So that leaves Adult Protective Services, in Indiana at least, right? So here's how Adult Protective Services works in Indiana. Adult Protective Services is not like Child Protective Services. There's not, a, there's not like a bunch of offices and case managers, right? It's usually one person with a couple assistants. That one person usually has three or four counties, that they that they have to see oversee with all of the cases of adult abuse, right? And they work directly under the prosecutor. So we have some really good adult protective services folks here. There ain't no way, there ain't no way that they can get to all these cases. So what ends up happening is nothing. They've reported it, this independent the bequist They don't have any teeth, so to speak, right? So, all they can do is ask to see investigations, and they can maybe say that a provider needs to retrain, right, their staff or something like that. So, then what happens is say abuse is substantiated, right? We've proved, we've proved that somebody had been sexually assaulted. Well, providers of services over here for people with developmental disabilities, it doesn't say that we have to call the police. It just says that we have to fire the person so we fire them then what happens they go and and another job another provider Mm -hmm. right there's no state data database for this profession at all so what happens is it's it's the perfect place for abusers to to do their dark work right so the system has to be overhauled we we it, and I'm not, listen, I'm not knocking Adult Protective Services, the people who do that. They they are truly passionate people, but just like lawyers, just like public defenders, just like prosecutors, they are overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that system, it, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say it, the system has to be rebuilt or people with developmental disabilities, at least in the state of Indiana, will not be protected. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't get over the fact that the people who would be in charge of an abuse investigation would be the company that did the abuse. Mm-hmm. But more people need to hear this, though. And yes. That's thing, yeah. Because this isn't like a this isn't an issue that a lot of people know about, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, disability issue. Period. Disability justice. It's mm-hmm. not twenty percent of Americans have disabilities. One mm-hmm. percent of people have intellectual disabilities. So people with disabilities aren't in they're in the minority really but they they're not right so this isn't just a uh disability issue it is a human rights human being issue right yeah, right, I'll, yeah. I'll i'll get off my, my <laughs> sofa
0: no i mean it's so it's so informative and and important i mean so like you know if we've got friends that are listening right now like where do we go from here obviously keep educating yourself you know, reading training. I mean, I wrote that down in giant letters.
4: I mean, obviously, I'm going to say um, as to where to go now. Start putting together. Start putting together your education program. What does it look like? Um, education for the students, but then also education from the par- for the parents as well. Mm-hmm. Um, parents realize and understand that you might need to be educated on how to talk to your kid about this mm-hmm. and that's fine that's mm-hmm. okay that doesn't make you any less of a parent you know if you you know need to ask questions well how do I address this mm-hmm. how do I talk about this I mean yeah
3: you know yeah, that's
4: exactly. why that's why we do all of this wonderful wonderful research and I say that you know that it's wonderful. It's wonderful for me. I love doing it. Um, (laughs) but if you, maybe if you're not a researcher, it's, it's boring, but that's why you have professionals that'll do this research so we can bring it back and we can, we can bust it down and share it with you. So, you know, start seeing what your education program looks like too. And it should be something that it should be something for students. Mm -hmm. It should be something for parents and it should even be something for the caregivers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lauren, I think you raised a very good question of, um, you know, do you know, do you know the signs? Do you know what to look for? Do you know, I, I mean, sometimes the, the signs can be louder than even someone saying it with their voice. Oh, absolutely. But if you don't know what you're looking for, mm-hmm. then you, you'd never know. You would just think, oh, they're just having a bad change day.
0: Changing behavior. Uh-huh. Yeah. So.
4: And, you know, education, 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 and you know, and keep the education going too. You know, like y- yeah, I can come to you know. I tell my students like uh, yeah, I can come to your school, um, and I can come and do an amazing presentation, an amazing lecture, and everyone will be all fired up. But the real work happens after I leave. Um, how how the self education continue? Mm-hmm. Um, are you having weekly check-ins um are you having like monthly you know uh monthly sessions i mean in the law you know cle ask any attorney about cle they might turn their nose up because continuing education i mean um but yeah what what does continuing education look like for 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 you after the the presenter's gone
2: Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. joey do do you talk to do you talk to parents about um, about how to talk to their kids about consent? I mean, I know you work with, with college students a lot. So what does that sound like? What's that look like when you have that conversation?
4: Um, you know, it's really we sit down and really just try to have more of a, instead of like a lecture, um, have more of a, you know, of a conversation. I'm very quick to put it out in the very beginning that I am a parent too. Um, So I am right there with you. I have a seven-year-old daughter who we aren't to that level quite yet, but we're getting there very quickly. (laughs) Um, And so like, hey, here are some of the conversations that I have to have with my kid. And here's the way that I go about doing it. For instance, consent. Now, at seven years old, it's. I feel like it might be too early to talk about sexual consent with my kid. But I can definitely te- teach you about asking permission to do things.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, my daughter, she's a hugger. She loves hugging. Um, whenever she graduated preschool and went to kindergarten on her last day, she went up and hugged all of her little friends, which is hilarious because my daughter, like, Towers over these <laughs> children. So she's like picking these kids up and like hugging them and their little feet are dangling. Um, and it's cute and adorable. But then later on, you have to have the conversation like, hey, Blair, so like, I know you love to hug and I know hugging for you is a, sh- a sign of affection. Not everyone likes to be hugged though.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: so like, make sure that you ask permission before you start going out and throwing your hugs around. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, okay, okay, I get it. So
0: yeah. You know, a, a huge thing at D S L too, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Um no, no, no. uh is we, you know, in general, individuals with Down syndrome really love to hug, but some mm-hmm. some really don't. Um, but even like with my nephews, sometimes they don't want to hug me goodbye. And I am constantly like, you do not have to hug me if you do not want to. (laughs) You know, that's a huge one, too. Like, it's okay, you can tell me no. And, um, you know, or or I'll give them a choice. Would you like to, you know, hug, goodbye, high five, whatever. And, and usually that, you know, that starts to sink in. No, it's okay. I don't want to and hey, that's fine, too. I know that you love me, you know, so that's important too. Yeah. Other
2: normalize the no. Normalize, yes. It's okay. Yes. Don't make your kids do stuff. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying like homework, but <laughs> if they don't want to hug, practice saying no with them. Mm-hmm. That's
4: And, uh, you know, other elements of talking to parents is just sitting there and answering questions. Parents, if a parent tells you they haven't thought about this, they're lying. Everyone's thought about this. So it's like, and you probably have questions. It's just being comfortable enough to sit there and to you know and to ask so Mm -hmm. you know just like I'm going into a group of frat boys and I got my frat guy hat on when I go into a group of parents I got my parent hat on Mm -hmm. it's like hey look these are questions that I've had um and then once you get that conversation going then you have a dialogue Mm -hmm. that starts up and other people are chiming in and maybe you said something I didn't even think about Mm -hmm. so I don't know I feel like that's kind of that's kind of what works for uh with parents um Obviously, there's information that, like, I feel that I have to lead and I have to narr- navigate. So, for instance, if I'm talking to a, par- a group of parents of high school seniors and these kids are about to go off to college, then it's like, okay, I got to break down, like, what Title IX is and, like, what your kid is going to encounter in regards to Title IX at their university or at their college. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me dig into my Title IX bag and break it down for you like that. Mm-hmm. But
0: It's important, too. You know, more and more um, colleges are, are having um, in, in individuals with intellectual disabilities um, join the college program. So it's very important that we inform these students. We have three uh, college programs in the Louisville area right now um, that mm-hmm. are going so we need to make sure that those students know about Title IX as well.
4: And, and you know, Lauren hit the nail on the head earlier on. It's even more important whenever you're coming to college because the perpetual child thing, that might be what's going on at home. But when you get on this college campus, that's that that's out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, that is out the window. And that is a that can be a very large culture shock. hmm. If it's been one way for 18 years and now it's another way, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you're, you're coming in and you are physically developed just like everyone else on this campus. Mm-hmm. So you have it's, feelings, even yeah. more, it's even more important that we educate for the parents and the students that are going to be coming to yeah. in the higher. Well,
0: level. and that's a whole nother can of worms too. J- just parents putting that perpetual child on their own child and not letting them have their own choices. I mean, that's that's pretty common.
2: Yeah, I was gonna actually ask, um, I have a million questions for Joey, but uh, <laughs> I won't really you too hard. Uh, one of the things that, that I confront, and Carly, I'm sure that you've c- confronted it too, we don't have to convince people with disabilities to, to take a sex education class, they're interested. Mm-hmm. It's the parents who sometimes are their guardians who can legally make that choice for them, which don't get me started on that <laughs> either, Carly, but um, guardianship's a hot mess here in Indiana. So so it's convincing the parents. I mean, I I, I um, worked at a, a, a provider when I first got started, and one of the things I realized was They've never had like sex education classes, or a lot of folks did. So I did a sex education class, worked on it for like a month, was ready to do it, and then people somebody, my boss, was like, You can't do this. I was like, why not? They're all adults. They're like in their 30s and 40s, and they you know we have to get parent permission. So, Joey, how do you like we have a double duty where we have to convince the parents or loved one of a person with a disability, developmental disability, that they need this class and they need this education. And they're viewing it as, well, they're never going to have sex. So what does it matter? Mm-hmm. So do you have any tips on how you would approach somebody with that? With that? Is it more coming at them with statistics saying, okay, they may not have sex, but they are, but they could be abused and they
4: need to know the signs. But I don't like, what do, well, you, I, what do you think? I think the, I, I think the response that I'd have, and it might be a smart response, but I think the response that I have for a, for a parent that said, oh, well, they're never going to have sex. I, I'm like, well, they may not ever have consensual sex, but that ain't the only type of sex that's out there. It's true. Let's talk about, let's talk about the non-consensual stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then i probably get fired for being a smart aleck. <laughs> but, um, but no, I think, I, I think transparency is the first thing with the, with sexual education classes letting parents know exactly what you're going to be covering.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: and if that's giving them a syllabus, maybe that's what it looks like. But, you know, you want to take, because obviously here, it's the parent that's fearing the class. You know, the students are probably ready to hop right in and, and learn. right?
3: right. But
4: the, the, it's the parents that, that are fearing it. So being able to be transparent, like, hey, look, this is what we're going to be covering um, this is what we are going to be, you know, teaching, you know, your student, your child about. Um, I think that's a very good first step in kind of starting to relieve a little bit of that that tension or mm-hmm. a little bit of that anxiety as to, okay, what are you teaching my kids at that school over there? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a step. Um, you know, certainly we don't want to scare parents, mm-hmm. but we want to be real with them. And, you know, I think Those statistics that you gave are very, very important. We just have to figure out a way to get that across to the parents in a way that is not terrifying, even though
0: it should be. Um, It is, and it should be, yeah. Yeah.
4: in, In a way that's not terrifying, but a way to say, like, hey, look, this is the reason why we want to do this class and why your child mm-hmm. should be in the class is because of these, these statistics right here. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to, you want to raise the right level of panic, so to speak.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, but yeah, yeah. I think just that transparency and, you know, a, you know, making it a collaborative effort too.
0: Yeah. with the, the Yeah. The, we have had some, some great, um, sex education for parents sessions at DSL. Um, and they're always, you know, even though parents say, I can't come. Can you record it? I always say no, because, um, I want everyone to feel safe. That is a safe space and they can ask any questions that they want. Um, and I've been very pleased with the questions that they bring up, um, you know, the uh, the concerns that that they're that they're brave enough to to ask and things like that. Some parents don't say anything, um, you know, they just kind of soak it all up. But a lot of the concerns um, that um, luckily I was able to provide some some resources for. Uh, definitely internet stuff, definitely lots of internet, Facebook friends, how do I teach them about not friending people? How do I monitor that? How do I keep them from watching pornography? And you know, all those types of things. Um, we're, we're definitely up there. Um, but I can tell you right now, I mean, we, it, it didn't get this dark and heavy as we've gotten today. And mm-hmm. I do think that um, that it, it is important. One thing that I thought was interesting is um where I was hearing a lot of like no no and knee, knee and pee pee, like lots of words that mm-hmm. for genitalia and um and call we just, it what it is. You just have that's to call it what way it way it, it can't you can't make it weird. You can't make it uh like a you know, whatever. You you call it what it is and and nonchalantly talk about it in your house. Like that's one way also to just kind of, you know, um with with any kiddo i think is important to just you know we we call it what it what it is but um anyway yeah i think
4: uh really working to really working to win those parents over is 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 key because i mean they might be your biggest critic but if you can win them over they'll be your biggest advocate to say hey hey look other parent i was kind of worried about this too but hey look I went to the joint session that they had. They had this awesome uh, parent and student session where we got to sit in and we got to take part in it. It is legit. And you don't even have to even lift the finger at that point because <laughs> then you got the parents talking among themselves like, mm-hmm. well, well, dang on, I don't want my kid to do that. Too. So, <laughs> yeah. but it's just figuring out a way to start from the ground with those parents and kind of work and build that trust and build that rapport. Mm-hmm.
2: I love the idea of, of, of being tra- I love the idea of bringing the parents in on it. Um, and also love the idea of, um, of being really transparent with what, what you're teaching. Cause for some reason, I think that, that, that parents and, and loved ones think that we're just going to roll a hardcore porn film, right? <laughs> right. And on, this is how it works. But it's not, it's not what it is. And it's actually even, it's different than a class that, um, that you would normally teach because usually the big, you know, I'm not going to get into this, however you feel is however you feel, but usually you can teach sex ed, but you know, we're going to do the abstinence only kind of mm, deal. That's what we mm-hmm. want. We're not even talking about getting into that. We're mm-hmm. just getting, talking about getting into biologically what happens.
0: Yeah. So one, one last question. I, I try to ask all my, all my guests and I'll give you a second to think about it if you need to, but this podcast is called the Kindness Warrior Podcast and it all kind of stemmed from this silly little shirt that I designed and it turned into sort of a movement for Down Syndrome of Louisville. And I love the word warrior just because it just to be to be a kindness warrior is is so much more than just to like be kind. <laughs> you know, I've got my little be kind tattoo on my arm, but like to really be a kindness warrior and I and I think that, you know, I've I've thought of it a couple of times while we've been talking today and it's like I, I feel like I, I've done my part in being a kindness warrior today because I, I trudged through my uncomfortable feelings and I talked about these things that because I want to make a change and I want to help. Um, so my question is, in your mind, what would you call a kindness warrior?
4: I think a kindness warrior is someone who is kind even when being kind goes against the grain. Um, you know social media especially right now is just such a just a hostile place, right it's it's very hostile on Facebook. and you know, at the beginning of you know i I will take little breaks, I'll take a little month long three, four month long breaks just to kind of get out of that world. but you know, coming into twenty twenty one I'm like, you know what, like from now on. That's going to be my goal in this area: is to spread kindness, even whenever, even when everyone around me is posting about how they hate this political party or the next. Like, you know what? If me posting a stupid picture of my dog or retelling <laughs> one of those amazing conversations that me and my kid have, if if that's what it takes to like maybe put a smile on your face, then I will be goofy. I will be silly. I will. Bring that kindness to you, even when everything around me is is on fire and burning down to the ground. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's what being a kind of warrior is: is even when it's not the popular thing to do, or even when you maybe you want to get on it, maybe you want to talk a little trash too, but you still <laughs> are able to to be kind to everyone else and and carry yourself in a kind. Yeah, ground.
0: it's almost like radical kindness. You know, kindness people. A lot of times, people think of kindness as like just being nice you know like just and it's not it's not like kindness is you know advocacy and yeah what what you guys do every single day of your lives is is to be a kindness warrior in quotes (laughs) what do you think lauren
2: i i love the term first of all it reminds me of um of the term love warrior you know which is um my uh, brother martin luther king jr um one of my favorite sermons of his is his sermon on love, a very famous sermon where um, he says that the hardest thing it's a sermon, keep in mind, so he's in he's in sermon mode, Brother King. He says the hardest thing, hardest task that Jesus Christ gave us was to love our enemy, right? Because it's a hard thing to do. And you mentioned radical, that is a radical love, right? I mean, that is a that is a love where your house can be bombed like Brother King's house was bombed and you can go out on your porch with the rubble behind you and tell the crowd that's gathered to love the person that did this. Right. That's that's the kind of kind of love that that a a kindness warrior has. That's the kind of love that uh, that Brother King had when a, a Nazi literally rushed the stage and punched him in the face. And instead of throwing him to the police, he took the guy aside, gave him a Coke, and tried to figure out why he had done that and didn't press charges, right? Because to go after the person wasn't what Brother King was interested in, but to go after the system. Mm -hmm. So I think that being a kindness warrior is is having that love propel you and turning that rage that you may have. Like today, the mm-hmm. topics we're talking about, mm-hmm. and turning that into love, and turning that into really changing the system. You know, I can get angry all day long. I mean, Joey mentioned social media. Psh, man, <laughs> you see a lot of people on there posting all these angry memes. But when you need them on the streets, they ain't nowhere to be found, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about when you when you're talking about needing people to call their politicians, crickets, right? So being a kindness warrior is taking the information that that you know, taking that love in your heart, that love of the disability community or whatever community and applying it, right? Applying it. I can love to my heart's content here in this world, but if I don't talk to anybody, where's that love gonna go?
1: This has been the Kindness Warrior Podcast, a Down Syndrome of Louisville production. To learn more about Down Syndrome of Louisville, visit our website, downsyndromeoflouisville.org. If you have questions or ideas, you can email us at Pod at d-s-o-f-l-o-u.org. The music for this episode was written and performed by Alex Stotz and Owen Eiler. The Kindness Warrior podcast is produced and edited by Ethan Holstein, produced and hosted by Carly Riggs. Thank you so much for spending time with us today.